So good morning, guys. As Grant said, my name is Zach. I'm one of the younger staff people at TSAD on our staff team. Um, and just a little bit of background info for me. I actually graduated from UC in 2018. I started off pre-med, but ended up switching to professional writing and creative writing. Uh, and I had the desire to go into the publishing industry with that, to read and probably edit uh, novels that would be written, but the Lord put it on my heart to go into full-time ministry instead. And so starting in 2019, I came on staff full-time. And if you don't see a lot of me, it's because, as Grant said, I usually do a lot of stuff behind the scenes, usually running around with the soundboard or stuff today uh, on Sunday mornings. And so what, I don't get a lot of opportunities to be in front of you guys, but when I do, I love getting up here and just sharing the Word of God with you. Now, for those of you who don't pay attention to dates, today is Halloween, uh, and tomorrow, November 1st, and the semester will almost be over. But in keeping with the spirit of Halloween today, how many of you have seen Disney's movie, Coco? Yes, yes. okay. Yes. See, I, I, I can't speak for all of you, but I think for me, it's one of Disney's best movies they've put out. Uh, I, I'm a creative writing major, and so I'm a sucker for good stories. I love the music in Coco. Just all around, it's a fantastic movie. It's, but if you haven't seen it or it's been a while, the movie is really about a young boy named Miguel uh, who finds himself transported to the land of the dead as a living boy. You can see how this is already going to be a problem. Uh, once there, he's on a race for time to, to find his great-grandfather and receive his blessing in order to be transported back to the land of the living. If he doesn't, he'll be trapped in the land of the dead forever. And at the heart of Coco, we really see that it's a story about a boy who's trapped between these two worlds, the land of the living and the land of the dead. And we, we begin to see that these two realities cannot coexist. If he, returns to the, if he returns to the land of the living, he cannot stay in the land of the dead. And if he fails to receive his great-grandfather's blessing, then he cannot ever return to the land of the living. At the end of the movie, he has to end up in one of them, but he cannot exist in both at the same time. And I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but hopefully this helps us picture the reality that Paul is going to be painting for us in Romans 6 today that we're going through. That there are these two realms. There is the realm of sin, which leads to death, and the realm of obedience, which leads to life. And, and you can only live in one of them. You can't live in both. And yet so often, I think I see Christians trying to like, walk this line between the two of them. To proclaim faith in Christ, and yet at the same time still being enslaved to their sin and living like they're not free from it. And so, before we dive into uh, Romans 6, I want to give you a question to think about. What realm do you live in? The land of sin or the land of freedom? What realm do you live in? So with that, I'm going to pray and then jump straight into the text. Uh, Father, I thank you for today, Lord. I praise you for bringing all of these people here, uh, for, just this, for simply giving us your word to begin with, Lord, for choosing to communicate to us, for revealing yourself to us in this way. God, I pray for this open minds and soft hearts today, uh, that whatever you have to say to me speaking, Lord, to the people receiving this, that your spirit would just penetrate the walls that we have put up, Lord, our flesh, and our desire to just be a part of the world. God, I pray that your word speaks louder than anything, that, than any of our pride, than anything that we have within us today. And God, I pray that if there's anything that I say that is not of you, God, I pray that it falls upon deaf ears, but Lord, that your spirit would speak through me, and that it would... Uh, be sharp and a double-edged sword, Lord. God, we just thank you for this day, and I praise you uh, for everything you have done for us. In your name, amen. So as I said, we're going to be in Romans 6 today, and I'm just going to read the whole thing straight through. And so it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, so starting in verse 1, Paul writes, 
What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal, mortal body, so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? No. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human ana analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are freed with regard to righteousness, so what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a lot going on in this chapter. I know that's a lot of text to kind of fly through right away. And in reality, we could spend weeks dissecting every single verse of this and diving into what it's saying. Uh, but since we're going through the entire chapter in one day, we're going to hone in on verses 10 and 11 today, which is really the crux of the entire chapter. Or in another way to put it, like Paul summarizes the entire chapter in those two verses. So I'm going to read them again real quick for you. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we are roughly a third of the way through the book of Romans. Uh, if you weren't aware, we're preaching through the book of Romans this entire school year. Uh, we'll probably wrap up sometime towards the end of next semester. And th thus far, and as we continue reading Romans, you'll notice that Paul never once tries to argue whether or not Jesus died. Okay? He accepts this as a fact right from the beginning, and the entire Roman world would have known this. And the Roman church that Paul is writing to would have known this as well. They would have known that the Romans, the government, crucified Jesus. And they would have been convinced of his resurrection. So Paul doesn't try to argue whether Jesus dies. He, tries to, he goes about arguing the why in the entire book of Romans and what that meant for the Gentile and the Jewish worlds. And this is what he's talking about here, the, the why. And Paul's word choice here raises a little bit of questions, or at least for me, it raises some questions. He says that Jesus died to sin. 
We hear all the time that Jesus died for our sin, but Paul says here that Jesus died to sin. And he even uses the same language in verse 2. In verse 2, he's referring to Christians, to believers, and he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So the question begs, what does Paul mean by this phrase? Why does he say that Jesus died to sin, that believers died to sin? And why does he apply it to both of us at the same time? Uh, so I just want to start out by stating like, with 100% confidence that Paul does not mean that Jesus died to his own sin. It's, a very, it's explicit in the Bible that Jesus was sinless, that he had no sin of his own. And Paul himself believed this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, He made the one... God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Made the one who did not know sin. This was Paul writing this in 2 Corinthians. He was convinced that Jesus was sinless. And so secondly, going, kind of going off that, Paul certainly believed that Jesus did die for our sins. He wasn't just trying to interchange language here or say something different. This wasn't a slip-up by Paul, but we can actually come to the conclusion that it was intentional by Paul. He just got done arguing in Romans 5 that uh, God proves his own love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so with those two possibilities ruled out, what else is Paul saying here? What could he be saying? Well, I I think I would argue that the phrase died to sin is referring to this motif or this recurring theme that we see throughout Romans 6. Uh, So to give you some examples of what I'm talking about, as a ruling power. Uh, So in verse 6, we see, so that the body ruled by sin, and then so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master. This is the first 14 verses of Romans 6. We can continue going and see it elsewhere in Romans 6, the rest of Romans and the rest of the Bible, that sin has this almost ruling authority on our world right now. It holds a position of power. And this has been the case ever since the fall. If you remember back to the first three weeks of preaching through Romans, this is what Paul talks about in the first three chapters, basically, is that the entire world is sinful and deserving of God's wrath. This is a known fact if you go through Romans that Paul just sets it up from the very beginning. He's laying laying out his argument. And it might be hard to read that in scripture, but you really don't even need scripture to see that we live in a world that is dominated by sin in a lot of ways. Open up a news source in the morning, go open up Twitter. Um, like, just pay attention to how people talk to one another, how people gossip about one another and talk to each other. Like, sin is a ruling authority in this world, and it is our master from birth. And as such, slavery to sin is the default setting for us. And without Christ, it is our only setting. But look up at those four verses again, and look at how Paul describes sin. He speaks about it as reigning or having mastery at some point in the believer's past, but no longer having mastery anymore. He's using past tense to refer to it. So how is this possible? If we live in such a broken and fallen world where our very nature is corrupted and unable to choose God, how does sin no longer reign over us? Well, answer is pretty clear because Jesus did exactly what we are unable to. He was fully human and fully God. He lived on this earth as a human being. And as, as such, he was also tempted by sin. The author of Hebrews tells us this, that he was tempted as we were tempted. The difference being that he never actually succumbed to sin's power and never actually sinned. 
And so by the phrase that Jesus died to sin, Paul is helping us see the incredible truth that through his death and resurrection, that Jesus not only saved us from our sins, but he defeated the power of sin that is ruling over this world. In doing so, he paved this new path for humanity, a path where sin no longer reigns, where Christ reigns. And this is really where we see Paul hint at this idea that there are two realms that we talked about in the beginning, an old realm and a new realm. In the old realm, sin reigns and death is the product. In the new realm, Christ reigns and righteousness is the product. So then why does Paul use this language to refer to both Jesus and believers? Well, if we re- we're going to read back through verses 2 through 9 where Paul explains this for us. Starting in verse 2, Paul writes, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, in order, order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. So as Jesus died to sin, so too has the one who has put their faith in him. He has paid that price for both himself for both the world no longer being under the power of sin and for those who put their faith in him. So Paul is drawing this connection here for the believer to see and understand that this is the reality, this is the truth for those who put their faith in Christ. That through his sacrifice that you too have died to sin, and by that I mean the power of sin. You have been transferred along with Jesus to this new realm, this new world where sin does not reign. And the implications are huge. If Jesus just died to pay the price for our sins, but not to deliver us from the power of sin, we'd be unable to live out our lives for him. Unable to follow him in obedience, we would still be trapped as uh, slaves to sin. To whatever our former selves were, whatever we were in this old world, we'd still be enslaved to that and trapped in that reality. But Paul argues that not only is this not the case, but that it's impossible. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The argument Paul addresses here is if we are saved by faith and not by works, and if God is glorified by forgiving, why don't we just keep on sinning? I mean, the more we sin, the more that God can be glorified by forgiving us of our sins. It's a win-win for both parties. But Paul says, no, this is foolish and impossible. If your faith is in Christ and you have died to sin along with him, And if you've died to sin, how can you still live in it? You've been transferred to this new realm where the power of sin is broken and given a new life. And you cannot continue being enslaved to it as it is no longer your nature. David Guzik, uh, who writes a lot of commentaries over the Bible, used this analogy. Once a caterpillar has been made into a butterfly, the butterfly no longer has business crawling around on trees and living in leaves like a caterpillar again. Its very nature has changed. Once you have transferred into this new realm with Christ, You no longer have any business crawling around in this realm of sin again. Your nature has changed because of Christ's sacrifice for you. So Jesus died to save us from our sins and to free us from the power of sin. 
But that's only half of verse 10. The second half, or the whole thing reads, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all times. Once for all times. But the life he lived, he lived to God. Paul switches tenses here uh, mid-sentence. He refers to Christ's death in the past tense, and then as something that previously happened, and then he switches to the present tense, the life Jesus lives. And so this was something that was true as Paul is writing Romans, something that has been true since then up until the point where we are sitting here today, and something that will be true unto eternity. Christ lives. So he didn't just die the per- or live the perfect life we couldn't live on this earth and die the death we deserve to die. He didn't just die to, um, to de- defeat sin for us and to defeat the power of sin, but he rose from the grave and lives his whole life devoted to God's will and purpose. This is what marks the beginning of eternal life, that Jesus reigns and will reign for eternity. So the question for us then is, how are we supposed to respond to what Paul is saying here? Like, this is all great, but what is our call to response? Let's keep reading. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin. So what Paul is not saying here is that we um, are unable to sin. In fact, in verse 12, he acknowledges this and says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Sin no longer reigns for the believer because we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. But that doesn't mean we can no longer be tempted with sin on this earth. Uh, Douglas Moo, another man who writes, wrote a fantastic commentary over the book of Romans, put it this way. It is not sin, but the believer who has died, and sin remains, even though it does not reign. Therefore, while living in sin is incompatible with Christian existence and impossible for the Christian as a constant condition, it remains a real threat. Paul acknowledges there is still temptation. We may be free from the power of sin, but we live in a world that is surrounded by sin. And while we remain new into Christ, it's not like we suddenly forget who we were, our past transgressions, our past experiences, or our old self. Can Jesus fully take away those temptations? 100% yes. Firmly believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus has the power to heal and chooses to heal people. But I've seen oftentimes that this often isn't the case. And Kyle talked about this a couple weeks ago as to the why. Um, But... For most people, those temptations linger despite sin no longer holding any power. And yet, this Paul, what Paul tells us here, he tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ because he knows that there is a difference between something being true and living like it is true. So I mentioned earlier that I graduated from UC. I didn't actually start at UC. I actually transferred my sophomore year of college Uh, from this little 2,000-person Christian college called Malone University in Canton, Ohio. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And as you can probably guess, uh, the culture there is a little bit different. Going from this little Christian bubble to a public 44,000-person campus was a bit of a drastic change for me. But this wasn't the hardest adjustment I had to make. It was difficult, but this wasn't the hardest adjustment. The hardest one was going from a place where Christianity was basically spoon-fed to me. Like, I couldn't escape it. It was required. It was mandated to a place where I could choose to do whatever the heck I wanted. And for the first seven months of my time at UC, that's what I chose, chose to do. I chose to ignore God altogether and live my life how I wanted to. I was vaguely a part of H2O and uh, Campus Crusades or crew at the time, but 
uh, my first semester, I came to more services hungover than sober. I just chose to ignore it. My entire life, I was told to follow Christianity, to be Christian. It was mandated again at Malone that I be Christian. And so I, I knew this was true. But I never lived as if it was true. I never actually died to my sin, and I was still enslaved to it upon transferring to UC. I tried to walk this line, like I mentioned in the beginning, of living in both realms at the same time, of having one foot in the door of Christianity and one foot in the door of sin. And what Paul's telling us here is that it is impossible. If you are a Christian, you are dead to sin. Not partially dead, not in a coma. You are dead. You are no longer able to live in this reality. Your very nature has changed. It no, sin no longer holds any power over you as you've been made new and set apart from this world. And this is the incredible truth that Paul is revealing to us here. But do you live like it is true? Do you live like you are a part of this world or do you live like you are set apart from it? In the last part of Romans 6, uh, Paul uses the analogy of slavery here to point out that there are only two realms to choose from. There's not any others. You have slavery to sin and slavery to God. And I know that for our 21st century minds, we hear that word slavery, and we cringe a little bit, and it probably makes this passage a bit difficult to comprehend, come to terms with, and understand. And it's understandable. Slavery has left a lot of scars on this world. But I'm going to read through Romans 6, 15 through 20. And when you hear Paul using the word slavery, I want you to remember that he is writing this in the first century and that by using the term, he's not condoning slavery, but simply using it as an analogy to point us to a bigger spiritual truth. So starting in verse 15, Paul writes this. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. So the nagging question on your mind right now is, okay, Paul, why are you using slavery here? Like, why even use this term at all? Well, let's look at a, Paul's argument um, from Romans 6 so far. So he starts off by talking about how believers have been set free from the power of sin because of Christ. Because we have died to sin along with him. In verse 14, he writes, for the believer, sin will no longer rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. And at the beginning of verse 15, we see Paul asking another rhetorical question. And what he's doing is basically flipping verse 14 on its head and proclaiming that freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. And, what, and by piecing this together, we really see that he's walking this tightrope between legalism, which is excessive like uh, adherence to rules, and licentiousness, which is living in complete disregard to rules. So he uses this term slavery to help us see that everyone is under a master, and that master reigns over us. You might be thinking, like, what about Christians? We're not a slave to God. Well, when you become a Christian, you're not suddenly made free to just sin however much you want. Paul just said that in verse 15. You're, you still have a master. You still submit to God. 
Like, you still have rules to follow. You still have to walk in obedience. In fact, the Christian, you could actually say, is the opposite. It's that when you're saved, you're given a greater purpose. You're given the purpose to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This isn't a choice, but it's walking out in obedience of a command that God has given us. And so what Paul's telling us here is that the question is not whether we will serve a master, but which master we will serve. Sin, which leads to death, or God, which leads to life. So which master does your lifestyle say you are serving? Which master does your lifestyle say you're serving? If you claim to be a Christian and you went out and got drunk last night or hooked up with someone, are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to God? If you claim to be a Christian and you're harboring bitterness towards someone in your heart right now, who are you a slave to, sin or to God? If you claim to be a Christian and you love yourself more than you love God, who are you a slave to? Who is your master? And I could keep going and going with more examples about how when we profess faith in Christ, we can sometimes live as if Christ is not our master, but sin is. But no matter what else I mention, the truth is like this. Like Miguel and Coco, you cannot be dead to sin and enslaved by it. You cannot live in these two realms at the same time. It's against our very nature as Christians. We read in 2 Corinthians that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. If you are in Christ, the old is gone, and you have been made new. So live in recognition of that, and consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, like, this is great and all, like, Paul's given us some great truths, but how the heck do I go about this? Like, I've been a Christian for years, and I still feel enslaved to sin. I'm still addicted to porn. I still lust after people all the time. I still feel enslaved to sin, even though I put my faith in Christ. Well, I, I first want to say to you that, that Paul wrote this in Romans for a reason. Like, he, he wasn't just writing this as some, like, vague ivory tower theological argument of, like, oh, some people may struggle with this. This is an active struggle for Christians in the early church. And it still is for us. That it's difficult to shed our old selves and to live new for Christ. It's a completely countercultural idea. So Paul wrote this for a reason. You're not the first person to think that or struggle with that. There's a famous movie called The Shawshank Redemption. A lot of you have probably heard of it. Um, and in this, the main character heads to prison and encounters a man by the name of Brooks. Uh, and Brooks spends a total of 50 years in prison before he's finally released. Thing is, though, Brooks had been a prisoner for so much of his life that when he finally got out, he did not know how to live and found freedom. Even though he was legally free, he was still a prisoner. And I think this is how it can be for Christians oftentimes, is that we are legally set free in Christ. We've been slaves or imprisoned by sin for so long that we don't know what it's like to live for Christ. We haven't had these... Uh, we haven't learned what it's like to ingrain habits of freedom in our lives yet. And so I want to spend the last bit of our time going through verses 13 and 14, where Paul addresses this, and he really shows us how to start building these habits of, of like, the Christian life, of living in freedom from sin. So in verse 13, Paul writes, 
Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so from this, I just want to give you guys like three practical ways to create habits of freedom. So first, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. It's honestly rather straightforward. God gave us an incredible gift with our bodies, but everything the Lord has given to us as a gift, Satan and sin looks to corrupt and use for evil instead of for us to glorify God. And Paul is telling us not to allow sin to use the gifts that God has given us to serve evil, but to serve him instead. So what situations are you putting yourself in? If you struggle with alcohol or you try to go to parties and be a light there, even though you are so tempted by alcohol that you can't go to that party and not drink underage or go and get drunk. If you struggle with lust and porn, maybe it's at certain times of the day. Are you putting yourself in those scenarios where you have no choice, basically? You're, you're setting yourself up for failure. What scenarios are you putting yourself in? And if you're anything like me, I know this is a lot easier said than done. The good news here is that the Spirit actually gives you what you need to overcome this. In Galatians, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He gives us the self-control needed to resist temptation, to not let our bodies become tools for sin, but to use it to glorify the Lord instead. Sin is no longer your ruler, so avoid the situations that lead you into temptation and use your body to glorify God instead of sin. Secondly, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So in the final chapter of Zephaniah, uh, he's one of the minor prophets uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, but in the final chapter, he's writing a book that's dealing with the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And for the last, like, 15 or so verses of the book, he writes about restoration. That despite the coming destruction, despite the Babylonian army coming to wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah, that the God of Israel, Israel will restore his people so that they may call on the name of the Lord once again. And in verse 17, Zephaniah writes this. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. This is an incredible image of the God that we serve. The God who is just and rightfully carries out his judgment, but also the God who promises restoration and is able to carry through with that restoration. And what we see here is that he is a God who rejoices over his people, who renews them with his love, and who delights over them with singing. How incredible is it that the Lord our God, the God of the universe who created the stars and the heavens, delights over us with singing? And if he sings over us, how like, shall we not praise him and praise him and worship him in response? God is so deserving of this. But you see that when not only is he worthy of this love, but when you are actually devoted to serving the Lord and worshiping him, you'll see that naturally it eliminates a lot of sin in your life. Because what you're doing is completely contrary to sin. You are praising the Lord instead of giving in to sin. In his book, Crazy Love, Francis Chan, Chan addresses this with an incredible analogy. He says, imagine going for a run while eating a box of Twinkies. 
besides being self-defeating and sight-ache-inducing, it would also be near impossible. You would have to stop running in order to eat the Twinkies. In the same way, you have to stop loving and pursuing Christ in order to sin. One of your best defenses against sin is by glorifying God for who he is and what he has done for you and by running after him with everything you have. It is contrary to the nature of sin. And third, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. So in Shawshank, when Brooks is finally freed, he never came around to believe he was actually freed. He had been in prison for so long that he forgot what it meant to be free and how to live as a free man. The result is that he was trapped in this mindset of imprisonment. And this is the truth that Paul is telling us in Romans 6, is that if you are a believer, you are no longer a slave to sin, no longer imprisoned by it. And part of forming habits of freedom actually starts with believing that you have been set free. It can be so easy for us to fall back into this realm of hopelessness, basically. It's like, I'm a believer, I'm doing great, and suddenly I slip up and I find myself in sin again. I'm doomed. I'm trapped here forever. I'm still a slave to my former sin. It can be so easy to find ourselves in that mindset and forget the incredible truth that Paul is telling us here is that you have been set free from the sin. That even when you fall into temptation and you struggle with sin, that you are no longer a slave to that sin. You have the power to overcome it because of what Christ has done for you. For sin will no longer rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. These words are a promise for every believer. From the moment you are transferred from death to life, Sin will never again be your master. So believe in this truth and live it out. Live it out with the assurance to go forth and boldly wage war against sin, knowing and believing that while you still may be tempted, sin can never again reign over you. To close out Romans 6, Paul writes this. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. Since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome of, is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The final outcome of being made new with Christ is eternal life with our Father in heaven. He took us from death, where we were still slaves to sin, powerless to escape it, and provided the free gift that we and provided a free gift for us, which is eternal life with God. So I want to circle back to the question I asked at the beginning. What realm do you live in? If you're in the realm of life, which one of these three practical tips do you need to work on the most? Maybe you need to learn self-control or to stop putting yourself in situations that lead you into sin. To not use your body as an instrument for evil and sin, but as an instrument to glorify the Lord. Maybe you're the person who's trying to run after the Lord while eating a box of Twinkies at the same time, still diving back into your sin. You cannot do both. Or maybe you just aren't pursuing the Lord at all, and you need to learn that pursuing him is not only worth it, but will eliminate a lot of that sin in your life that's holding you back. Maybe you simply struggle with believing the truth that Jesus has set you free, and therefore it is so difficult for you to live in it. That, like Brooks, you are legally free from sin, but believing it is so hard. And maybe you just need to actually be convinced and believe of the truth of Paul, what Paul said, is that you have been set free. Or maybe 
through hearing this, you're examining your lives and seeing that you live so completely enslaved to sin. Unable to break free of its power because you have never actually given your life over to Christ and died with him. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. So if you find yourself here during the second worship set, I encourage you to do exactly what Paul says there. To test yourselves in the faith and examine your hearts. If in doing so, you see that you are in Christ but still living as if you are enslaved to sin, then let this be an encouragement to you that that is not true, that you are no longer a slave to sin, and that you need to start running after Christ with everything you have, and as a result, it, he will start shedding away that sin. And maybe as you examine your heart, you realize that you have never actually experienced freedom because you've never actually put your faith in Christ. The good news is that this is something that is not a magical answer. You don't have to go for like an epic quest to figure, but you can actually enter into that freedom today and finally break free of those chains of sin. Christ died to offer us complete freedom from sin, and we still experience temptation a little bit on this earth, but he died to break that power of sin for us here so that we can live in obedience to him. And one day, all sin will be done away with. The question is, where are you going to be? Jesus has paid the price for your sins. But as Paul tells us in Romans 6, you cannot serve two masters. There's the old realm where sin reigns and death is the product, and the new realm where Christ reigns and righteousness is the product. The question that Paul leaves up to us is this. Which master are you going to serve? The one that leads to death or the one that leads to life and life eternal? Let's pray. The bank will go ahead and come back down. Father, I just thank you for this day again. God, I praise you. And Lord, I pray that this time we can be a, be a time that we sing praises to you as you sing over us and delight in us, Lord. That we can just be reminded of your goodness and of your truth and of your spirit. God, I pray that no matter where we're at today, Lord, that we can just search our hearts, examine ourselves, see where you're trying to prune us, where, see where you're trying to draw, uh, just basically shed sin from our lives, Lord. God, I pray that we can be a people and a church that pursues after you more than we pursue after sin, that runs after you with all we have and sets that box of Twinkies down, Lord, sets sin aside and runs after you with our lives. God, you are worthy of every bit of praise we could ever give you. And God, I pray that through this message today, Lord, that as people possibly go back and read through Romans 6 on their own, that you convict us. That you convict us of sin in our lives and where we need to turn to you. God, I praise you for all the work you've done in this world. I praise you for dying to set us free so that we no longer have to pay the price for our sins, Lord, but you paid that price for us. And I praise you that you also enable us to live fully for you in this world, Lord. That you didn't just die for our sins, but you died to our sins and the power of sin. And God, I pray that in response right now, that we can just sit down and worship you and praise you for who you are. Amen.